Hello and welcome to the Doctor Who Show's April episode for this year. I'm Dave. And I'm Rob. And this episode we are going to be talking about, in a bit of a sequel to our last one, the penultimate stories of each Doctor. Rob, how are you? Hello, Dave. I am well. I, we've just come off uh, Easter break, and I worked all through the Easter break. <laughs> My workplace had a stand out at the Easter show in Sydney, and I worked uh, Good Friday, Easter Saturday, Easter Sunday, and Easter Monday. My ankles almost fell off, but I'm okay now, I'm happy to say. That's reassuring and good to hear. I didn't work <laughs> the whole weekend, I must confess, but we have got a federal election coming in Australia, and I've mentioned before I work in politics and my boss is up for election, so this is a busy time at work for me as well. So I'm enjoying the chance just to uh, forget about that for an hour or two, chill out and just chat about Doctor Who with you, Rob. Exactly right. What else have you been doing lately? So I did see a couple of things that are not Doctor Who but may be of interest to a number of our listeners. I went and saw both parts of the play Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Now, that's playing down in Melbourne at the moment, I believe. It is playing down in Melbourne. I believe we're the second city to get the play. I think we got it before New York just. Um, and wow. Certainly, certainly after London. So, yeah, big, big deal. And these are tickets that are ridiculously hard to find. It sells out months and months in advance. And I won't say too much because, like, it is... It is one of those plays, but particularly given the Harry Potter context and the universe that it's set in, it's one of those plays where spoilers can really have an effect on on, mm. on your experience of it. But it was a phenomenally good play. It was good just as a play in itself. It was good technically as a play. The special effects that they used, the visual effects they used, incredible, like groundbreaking stuff that I've never seen before in the theatre. But it was also good, just a piece of Harry Potter. I mean, I'm not a big Harry Potter fan who grew up reading the books. I came to it through the films later in life. But yeah, as something that fits in the Harry Potter universe, it was really, really good. Lots of uh, additions to the world building, lots of little references. So mm. if if you're a fan of these sort of things and you ever get a chance to go see it, I fully recommend it. And the other thing is, last night I did go and see Avengers Endgame. Ooh. Now, I've not even seen the one that comes before that, so I'm completely in the dark here, but it sounds good, Dave. Look, it was a really good experience. We actually got it a day earlier than the rest of the world, um, not just because, as, as often happens, we get it sort of hours earlier because of the time zones, but because of Anzac Day, which mm. is a public holiday here in Australia, and you really it's the sort of memorial-type day where you can't launch a film. They released it on the Wednesday here rather than the Thursday. So we got it a whole day and a bit before the world. But the excitement levels when I saw this, the only thing I can really compare it to would be The Phantom Menace 20 years ago. Just in terms of the vibe going into this film, the audience there, it was a, it was a large cinema sold out. Every session yesterday and today was sold out well in advance. But being the, the climax of 20 or more movies... There was just a real sense that this is this is this is our return of the Jedi, Rob. <laughs> now, when you say you're comparing it to the Phantom Menace, it's just the vibe, not the quality. I'm assuming that's that's right. Yes, it is a much much better film. But yeah, that that excitement going into it, and look, I thought it was a really good film. I thought it did a really good job at wrapping up phase of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, mm. I will say, and, I, and again, I can't go too far because spoilers are a big part of this movie, but. It is a very different film to Avengers Infinity War. It, they're both excellent films, but they have very different styles, very different vibes. They work well as a sequel to each other, but if you walk in sort of expecting 
to pick up exactly where Infinity War left off and, and just continue in the same tone and style and vibe. That's not what you get. You get a whole new film that starts on its own terms and does its own thing and then pulls it all together. So a couple of really good non-Doctor Who experiences for me, Rob. What about you? Yeah, look, I will, I'll just say something quick on Avengers Endgame, and that's there are a ton of spoilers out there in reviews and such. I mean, I've famously said on this show before, I've maybe seen half of the Marvel movies, so if there's 20-odd ones out there, I've maybe seen 10 of them. But I read reviews and I read articles, and I basically have a pretty good idea what happens in this film. And I'm meant to be reading non-spoiler reviews, and I'm like, wow. That's incredible. You know, I maybe offline I'll say to you what I think happens in the film and you can confirm it for me because I'm pretty sure I know what happens. Okay, yeah, no, that'll be an interesting test to do. And disappointing if that is the case because yeah, th- this is a movie where you really want to be thrown about by the emotional beats of the film and the plot beats of the film. And to not be able to do that I think would be a real shame. So, listeners, if you're interested in this, and, and look, I haven't seen every one of the Marvel movies, but I've seen most... But if you're interested in this, get out and see it before it's spoiled for you. It is a very good experience. Yeah, there's even a hashtag going around at the moment, don't spoil the end game or something like that, because people are conscious of it. Yeah, there are there are signs when you go into the movie, don't spoil this. There's a warning at the start of the movie when they're telling you to turn your mobile phone off and everything. There's then a special warning saying don't spoil the movie. Um, and in fact, on that note, with the Harry Potter play, when you buy a ticket online, and obviously it's got your email address, the next day it actually emails you a link to a video of J.K. Rowling saying, I hope you enjoyed the play, I really enjoyed writing it. Now, you had a great experience, I ask you personally, please don't spoil it for other people who won't get to see the play yet. Which is just like a really interesting thing that we now have culturally, that these big things are actively saying to people, please don't spoil this for other people. Yeah, that's amazing. And obviously, I'm a Game of Thrones fan, and we've just got two episodes into that so far. And that that's a huge thing, too, not to spoil it for other people. But um, I guess that kicks off talking about me. I've done the Easter show recently, Dave, as I mentioned. I'm watching Game of Thrones. I just finished season three of Santa Clarita Diet, which is one of my favorite guilty pleasures on Netflix. It's like a horror comedy thing with Drew Barrymore as a zombie who eats people. Um <laughs> And if people think that sounds bizarre, yes, it's bizarre. It's fantastic. Nathan Fillion was in the first two series, basically as a head in a jar. But but, uh, he's not in the third series. He's reached that point of his career, has he? (laughs) He has. He has. I've seen a wonderful documentary on Suede, the uh, the 90s uh, British band, uh, which I absolutely loved. And they're still going now, but they're, they're mostly known for their 90s output. That was a fantastic documentary. And I've been playing a lot of Elder Scrolls online. So I've been doing tons and tons of non-Doctor Who stuff. Oh, I did watch one episode of the Macra Terra. I'll throw that in. <laughs> my Macra Terra has arrived, but it is sitting unopened. It may be one for um, after the election campaign, I'm afraid. Well, mm. I may sneak a couple in there once things get a bit... Um... <sighs> Well, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. It's that, it's that kind of a time, unfortunately. It is, it is. Anyway, this has been a bit more of an indulgent intro than we normally do. Shall we get into some Doctor Who news, Dave? Uh, we shall. So the first thing is, I guess, a bit of a re-piece of news for us, because we mentioned a few months ago, Rob, that we expected Season 10 to come out on Blu-ray fairly soon, given that a couple of local stores had it on their advanced schedule, and mm. people said, oh, no, no, and then... then season 18 was announced and everything but guess what the next season after this one is it's season 10 and i can only repeat what i said when we were speculating a few months ago rob really looking forward to this 
John Pertwee was my favourite Doctor growing up. Season 10 was one of the ones we had repeated on a regular basis, so that I'm really fond of it. But I still maintain there is no bad story in Season 10. Oh, it's it's fantastic, and and you know just just on that, we've we've mentioned it a few times over the past few months. But do you know the first time we mentioned it was last September, and I know this because someone on Twitter was saying, "I told you all a month ago that season ten was coming, and look, it's coming. Aren't I good?" And I just <laughs> I just sent them a picture of when we said it last September. I said, "I'll see your one month and raise you last September." Uh, so yeah, we did have the good oil, and I'll just add that in that uh, listing that we posted last september and have posted a few times since it also mentioned the wheel in space uh and we still don't know if that means it's a recovered thing or whether that's the next animation i assume it's the next animation but uh that could be coming in the near future too i'm sure that'll get announced at some stage yeah that is a very interesting point yeah we'll have to wait and see so rob we've now got two toms a davo and we're about to get a pertwee yes where do you think we go from here? Do we get a black and white or do we get a later JNT? I reckon we'll get a Sylvester McCoy. That's my tip. Yeah, I reckon there's a bit of demand out there for a Sylvester McCoy. There's a lot you can do with it. And I think also as well, I, I don't know what the Blu-ray team want to do with the black and white eras. It's very hard to do a complete season box set when the complete seasons don't exist. I think they're trying to maybe get more animated ones out and, you know, fill in some gaps and maybe release one with some animation in it, perhaps, at some stage. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, season one, you'd get pretty close. You just need Marco Polo, or you'll do it without Marco Polo. But I have to say, animated art Marco Polo is one that I would get excited about because I love the story and I think the visuals would add a lot to that i've said before it's one of the very few recons that i've actually watched and found engaging because mm. of those amazing visuals in the story so season one could be an easy place to start for them um season six would be potentially doable there's a lot of complete stories in there yeah. and and the invasion exists with the two animated episodes again space pirates is the issue but yeah interesting to see where they go from here but i, I just need to say as someone who was a little little bit cynical you know, a year or two ago about these Blu-ray box sets and you know, is it just another chance to take fans' money, I'm, I'm completely all in now. I'm not just buying them, I'm excited and speculating about what's coming next. Yeah, much like the DVDs, they're, they're proving to be a real labour of love and the team involved really actually care about the content they're adding and how they're packaging them and, and all of that good stuff. And and that's one of the things I like about Doctor Who, you know, when some of these big uh, franchises get a bit too big for their boots and just pump out absolute crap, Doctor Who always has this slight, even now, this slight cottage feel to it, you know, that it's, it's old fans who have grown up and got into the television industry or whatever get involved and, and all of this and, and, and sort of come together and, and really put in a lot of blood, sweat and tears that they don't really have to to make these things as special as they can be. They are a good thing, the Blu-rays. They are. And let's also remember there are probably a lot of people who have discovered Doctor Who in the last five years as they've you know, become teenagers and grown up with the new series who are maybe starting to get more interested in the old series. And a lot of the DVDs are hard to come by now. A lot are out of print. So I wonder if there is a whole new generation who is just checking out a few seasons of classic Doctor Who with these ones uh, who didn't have the DVDs. 
Yeah, well, I mean, we've seen people so excited about watching old episodes on Twitch. And then just the other day, to, to tie into what you just said, the uh, the Doctor Who fan club of Australia said, look, we've picked up these DVDs. We believe these to be the last commercially available DVDs of these particular stories. There's about half a dozen stories. If you want to buy them, come and buy them sort of thing from our store. And I thought, holy hell, you know, look at these half a dozen stories. You know, they're, they're just not going to be on shelves anymore. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's. I mean, it's a whole generation ago in some ways that these DVDs started coming out. So, yeah, it's it's good to have them, and it's good to have these nice, lovely box sets. It is. Shall we move on? Please, yes. I've got an interesting story here, Dave. Do you know? Just before Jodie Whittaker got into Doctor Who, she did this TV series called Trust Me. Have you ever seen it? Uh, no, I haven't even heard of it. Okay. the The, the premise is it's a bit of a medical thriller where. I've not seen it myself, but it seems Jodes uh, turns up in a hospital and says, like, I'm a doctor. You know, funnily enough, she becomes a doctor later on Doctor Who. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. she turns up and yeah. says, I'm a doctor. And she's not actually a doctor at all. And she's pretending to be a doctor. And, I, and I'm not sure whether it's because she's um, me- mentally unstable or something. I don't know why she does it in the show. But it's uh it's been a very popular series and the showrunner wants to make a second series but of course jody's not available for it now and he's been talking about it in radio times and the whole premise is well he's going to go off in a different direction and and design another character in another hospital i guess who's pretending to be a doctor and maybe the series will be like different stories about different people pretending to do this sort of thing and i thought wow they mustn't have signed her to like a two or three season deal it must have been just a one-off and then when it got popular they're like oh well we'll do this oh she's become doctor who okay (laughs) we can't get her back yeah i certainly know back in the 90s it was common to sort of get a a one plus whatever contract where if the seasons if the, if the show didn't quite work after one season it was very easy to drop everybody but if it was renewed for a second they kind of had you forever um so i wonder if that was the case people people are still just sort of signing for one season if it's good they'll sign you then for sort of a few more but yeah it's interesting as well that you can't do both i mean look back at the days when davo was doing three tv series at once yeah, exactly. And I don't think either... Well, Doctor Who's not a particularly long series. Uh, it takes a little while to make, but there's there's big slabs of the year where she's uh, available. Well, especially when we're getting none for a year. Yeah, and I don't think uh, this Trust Me series is a particularly long thing. Like most British series, I assume it's a, like six episodes or eight episodes a, a season or something. Yeah, interesting. Maybe it's all just an excuse. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's just funny though. In the article, the 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 showrunner was actually watching that Wimbledon final where it was announced that Jodie was the next Doctor, and he was as surprised as anyone that his star was. Oh, they've become Doctor Who. Oh, that's that's next things for me. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, mm. I came across a bit of news, Rob, that I think sums up so well just where we are in the silly season of Doctor Who news. We're now some distance from the last season coming out. We're a long way from the next season coming out, and there's just not a lot of sort of new news around the show at the moment. So Digital Spy has an interview with Pearl Mackie, which Mm. goes by the headline, Doctor Who's Pearl Mackie teases return as Bill Potts. And then when you go and read the text, find out that she actually doesn't really want to return as Bill Potts <laughs> and that she's moving on her career and she, she loves the character. She loved her show, but she's being a professional and moving on and kind of, you know, 
they, they almost did that sort of political thing like, so are you saying you'll never return? Oh, well, look, you know, maybe I'll return one day. It'd be nice to meet, nice to meet Jodie Whittaker. That's like the whole basis of an article saying, Bill Potts could come back. And yeah. Pearl Mac even says she hasn't seen Jodie Whittaker's season as the Doctor. She's she's moving on with her career. She, she loved the show, but um, it's not as though she's going home every night like John Barrowman and going, I wonder if they called today asking me to come back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, because he'd been a fan, much like Tennant and even Capaldi. Barrowman had been a fan, so he's well into it. I think Pearl Mackey probably just saw it as a job. She might not ever couch it in those terms to fans, like, well, it was just a job, you know, what do you want? Uh, but I think that's the impression I get from this article. Yeah, and people like Barrowman and Tennant and Capaldi also were very established in their careers before they did Doctor Who and had something they could go back to in a way that you know, Pearl Mackey wasn't. This was her real breakout role. And so I think she's very keen to put some other things on her resume so she's not just that person who once turned up in Doctor Who. In the way that, you know, Matt Smith had done stuff before he was the Doctor, but I think a lot of people saw him for the first time as the Doctor. And he's had to work to go and get those roles to move him away from Doctor Who. And he's he's done some very different type of roles to get him away from it, to make sure that he has a career that isn't just one line. Yeah, exactly. Even going as far to do that Hollywood film in between his um, penultimate episode and his final episode where he had to shave his head and that's why he was wearing the wig and the final his final story. He was just trying to do totally non-Doctor Who weird stuff just to get away from the role. Yeah, exactly. So I totally get for Pearl Mackie. She wants to fatten out her resume before she even thinks about coming back to Doctor Who, but she's not going to say never, is she? I mean, she enjoyed her time. But yeah, I just thought this was such a wonderful example of just the real clickbait nonsense stories that we're getting about the show at this time but before you know it i think we'll start to get real stories about the coming season yeah well look to round out the news let's have another non-story day <laughs> this is the radio times talking to russell t davis um and uh, putting the question to him would he come back and write an episode for the show specifically the 60th anniversary episode which i guess when you think about it is in our nearish sort of future uh, <laughs> which is it, kind of scary to think about he would have to begin filming in about four years yeah yeah um and uh, i mean to me it's like well wouldn't the showrunner at the time want to write the 60th anniversary story yes. why would you just give it to russell what a strange sort of premise um but anyway they put it to him and he said well it'd be like coming back to a job i did 10 years ago wouldn't it who would do that and it recalls um also when he wrote the novelization of rose um you know everyone got very excited but he was saying at the time of that novelization look yeah this is this is a one-off i'm not coming back to doctor who it's 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 done you know who wants to go back to their job from 10 or 15 years ago or or their school from 10 or 15 years ago you know and so look folks russell ain't coming back (laughs) and that's the story that's a non-story basically yeah which is a shame because it's interesting when you start to talk about anniversaries most people very naturally talk about getting previous doctors back but wouldn't it be lovely to have a little sort of mini season or a series of specials where each of the former showrunners came back and did one? Getting a, a Russell episode, a Moffat episode, potentially by then former showrunner Chris Chibnall as an episode, and one by whoever replaces him. It'd be lovely. I mean, it's a very fannish kind of thing. Oh, it's you know? hugely fannish, and it's never going to happen. <laughs> but, but in some ways, I think now I'd be almost more interested in that than I would be in getting old doctors back, because I guess that's just where I am with the show at the moment. I think that would be more interesting. Um, I mean, there's going to be a Doctor Who series in four years' time. I mean, 
it's going to get another series. I think it'll get at least one more after that. Does it get four more? I hope so. I don't know. You know, nothing lasts forever in television. And I'm presuming it wouldn't be Whitaker by then either. Well, this is the thing, yeah. I mean, for all we know, Jodie will do five, six, ten seasons, or maybe she'll do two when we're about to watch her final one. I, we don't know. Yeah. Or do they record a full season here and split it in half and call it two seasons? Yeah, because they've never done that before. Mmm. <laughs> actually, no, they, the one that never, I, I always got was that one in the middle of a Moffat series where they basically did two completely different seasons months apart but called it one because otherwise, you know, the season would only have been six episodes. So yeah. they do strange things. Yeah, very, very odd. Shall we move on? Uh, yes. Yeah, so look, one mini topic from me, Robin, it's one we foreshadowed last episode my season 18 blu-ray did arrive a, a week or so ago and i haven't watched it all i in fact not watched a lot but i just wanted to mention what i have watched has been really good um look i love this season it's in my top three seasons of doctor who of all time i absolutely adore it there is no story in there i don't like and many of them are personal favorites it, it is a season that is in part defined by its very interesting scripts and the christopher h bidmead style but also very much defined by that first season of J&T's production values and just the sumptuous look in mm. many of these stories, things like Full Circle and State of Decay and Keeper of Traken. I wanted to mention particularly, though, Logopolis, because this is one that's had a lot of work done on it. It looks really good on Blu-ray. Occasionally, as we've said with these Blu-rays, I did find that the better picture quality did make a few things look a little bit cheaper. The sets around Legopolis itself, which look great on an old 1980s television and really interesting, <laughs> just look like really cheap sets on Blu-ray, and that was disappointed yeah. me. The prop for the Master's TARDIS, that column, that looks really cheap and nasty, and the colour's really weird on the Blu-ray. I don't know if I was the only one who noticed that, but otherwise, yeah, look, it looked really, really good. The special effects, I've got to say, I'm a little bit mixed on. There were some in there where I just looked at them and gone, that actually looks really gaudy and just out of place and just right. unnecessary. But there are others, particularly as we get towards the end of the story, which are really well done. The new effect of Adric and Nyssa watching the entropy field over the universe is significantly better than what they could do in 1980, like significantly better. And, and really adds to that, that scene and makes it work well. The extra filming at Jodrell Bank really works well in the way that they've recut almost um, some of the ending of that episode. is really, really clever and really well done and a real labour of love. So, look, mostly very, very good. A few in my book a bit unnecessary, but, but interesting to see. But they are options. You know, you can watch the original things. So it's a win for everybody. Have they fixed that bit up in the radio telescope where it's just a picture of Anthony Ainley in the doorway? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they have tried to. I'm not sure it comes off. What, uh. they, what, what I think they've done is sort of digitally manipulated the 2D photo so that he's sort of like his head's nodding up and down and sort of cackling. And <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it almost looks a bit like a bobblehead. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, so look, it real like like kudos to them for having a go at it. Um, some people might think it really works well. I just thought it was a little bit 
ooh, didn't quite. I got what they're going for, but didn't quite get there. But uh, yeah, look, right. um, have you you seen any of these, Rob? Or are you going to check? No, these out? mine mine is here, and I'm delighted that I own it. But it's still wrapped in plastic. That Easter weekend where I just worked every day just destroyed my past yeah. week or so. Yep. No. Look, um, I'll be interested to hear your thoughts when you do. Thank you very much. A uh, quick uh, mini topic from me. Dave, I have finally, after thinking about it for over 30 years, joined the DWAS. Really? Yeah. What What prompted that? <laughs> you know, it's funny. We were talking earlier and I was saying how Doctor Who is still a bit of a cottage industry. And I did stop subscribing to Doctor Who magazine a while back. Um, and I haven't been doing many fanish things. But I just, I think it was probably during an episode of Diddly Dumb, where, you know, they're, they're the official DWAS podcast for, um, you know, the, the big convention that's coming up and stuff like that. And it just yeah. got me thinking about DWAS again. And I thought, you know what? If there's ever a cottage industry type thing, it's probably like the little fanzine that DWAS still does. And I think I'm at that point in my life where I want to read a little printed fanzine and be part of some fandom but not have to go to meetings and stuff and i think you know what i'm gonna join dwass you know <laughs> i've thought about it for 30 years and finally i'm doing it so i've done it and uh, i've got my first uh, issue of the fanzine here and it's it's wonderful so it's it, it, is it a printed or a pdf fanzine they send you uh printed came in the mail wow that's yeah. kind of cool i like yeah. that yeah i mean it's not a huge thing it's not very thick but there's articles in it and stuff, and it's put together by fans for fans. It's kind of the uh, the the print fanzine version of what we do on the podcast, you know, in some ways. Well, I've always said that podcasts are the natural evolution of the fanzine. I think that's not a particularly new or insightful uh, observation, but it, it is interesting. I mean, the reason why I would never have joined Dwas back when I was an active member of fan clubs is, of course, that it was on the other side of the world, and you you had to. You know, send a check off that would get there weeks and weeks later, and the postage to get stuff sent out to Australia kind of, you know, I mean, literally tripled the cost mm. of a membership, literally tripled. And so it, you know, really wasn't that worthwhile to pay a huge amount of money to get a fanzine that would take three months to get to you and be incredibly out of date by the time <laughs> you got it, particularly when you're getting local fanzines. So, yeah, that's a, that's very cool. Never, yeah, a, it never even occurred to me to do it. It's, it's very cool. Yeah, it's a quirky little thing I've done. You know, just threw some money down and thought, what the hell? Let's see what it's like for the next 12 months. And I might continue it. I might not. Based on this first fanzine, you know, I'm, I'm, I've not decided either way. You know, we'll see where we are in six months or eight months or something. I might renew. I might not. There you go. Mm. On to the main topic then, Rob. Yes. Drum roll, please. So we are doing penultimate stories now last episode of course we did sophomore stories we talked about how does a doctor's era get settled in and patted down with a second story after the big regeneration story and then it was mark from 42 to doomsday who said well when are you going to do penultimate stories yes and we both said that's a really good idea let's just do that yeah it never occurred to me at all to do it <laughs> yeah so i think what we're going to do is just run through the 12 stories that we have and, and again, look at both, is it a good story? Did we enjoy it? But also through that prism of, can you see the end of an era coming? Does it help set up before the big finale regeneration story? And how does it all work in context? Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to this because there's some interesting stories in here. There is a real variety, probably a bigger variety 
than we got with the sophomores. Yeah, I agree. Um, and, and, and I think that's partly a mix because we're going to see a variety. Some of them are literally just the, we're getting towards the end of the season. Have you got, got anything we can make? <laughs> and some of them are very deliberately penultimate stories. And that's a really interesting mix. This time we've agreed I'm going to do the odd numbered doctors and you'll do the evens. Mm-hmm. Which means I get to kick us off with one of the more unusual on this list, in fact, which is William Hartnell's The Smugglers. Yes, indeed. A very forgotten story. I listened to this on audio and actually discussed it on the, the podcast probably getting towards a year ago now. It's an interesting story in that it doesn't have any sort of foreshadowing. It's not set up as a penultimate story for William Hartnell. In the same way, The Tenth Planet almost isn't really a regeneration story. It's just a, a Starman story with a regen on the end in some ways. Well, you know, although there's a bit of seating. Anyway, we're not talking about The Tenth Planet, but... Mm. I said last episode that Patrick Chowton's sophomore story, The Highlanders, was an incredibly safe story to get his era sort of going and reassure viewers after the big change in lead actor for the first time. And I think The Smugglers is the mirror of that. This is a very safe, traditional Hartnell historical. It's a good story. I like it. There's a nice little plot there. It's not a great story. It's not a a world-changing sort of story. But it does get everything very, very safe. And what it does do is ensures that we're very familiar now with the new companions, Ben and Polly, Mm. because they're the ones that have to carry us through as we change the lead actor. So it is a very good showcase for them and putting them in a really traditional Doctor Who story. So we go, yep, we get them. They're the companions doing what companions do in a story we're used to. And then we can just completely throw the audience out by changing the lead actor in for episodes time so effective in that sense but it's it's also very standalone and let's face it very forgotten yeah the the story itself dave is unremarkable i mean you know mistaken identities people get accused of murder you know and all that it's very very straightforward and and coming after something like the war machines where the hartnell doctors in swinging london in the late 60s and so on it it does feel like a, a step back in time quite literally uh as well as figuratively I remember this first as a Target novel back in about 1988, I think it probably would have yeah, been. Yeah, thereabouts, yeah. Oh, the, good grief. The latter end of the run, definitely. That, that's like over 30 years ago now <laughs> itself. That's crazy. And it, it's always hard to judge stories like this when you read the novel first and the story itself only exists as just a few tiny clips and some audio. I mean, I guess your mind fills in so much and it's sort of hard for me to, to, to judge it like I can judge most of the other stories here uh, probably apart from the space pirates if i had to throw a score on it dave it's probably six out of ten fair if that maybe it's a five out of ten for me and i'm probably only saying six out of ten because i'm a sucker for historicals and i love seeing pure historicals uh look i think six six and a half is probably very fair it's an interesting opening gambit on this list but it's not the most interesting on this list by a long way Oh, hell no. (laughs) Which brings us to the Space Pirates, Dave. And again, another missing story. Well, I guess one episode remains, but it's essentially it's a missing story. And doesn't it get panned by the fans, Dave? It really does. Yeah, I mean, I've never been really, really down on it, but I get why people don't like it. I mean, the acting and the accents are a bit over the top, but... To me, this is still 60s sci-fi. It's Doctor Who maybe trying to be a 
bit Star Trek perhaps and I can sort of listen to it and you know not be too put off by it but it's not great either it's probably a four out of ten for me <laughs> look I don't have the dislike for it that other fans do I, I have said a couple of times now on various podcasts it really struggles because I think the weakest episode is the one that survives episode one's very exciting you have multiple raids on various different things you set up the pirates you set up the space core or whatever they are and then the doctor arrives and everything happens there's a big explosion and then part two sort of like okay let's all calm down let's sort of explain to the viewer what this universe is you don't see the pirates in this episode that's a problem Mm. and the doctor and his companions are just sort of stuck on board this um this satellite in you know locked in this room for the whole episode once you get to the end of part two, again, the space pirates are back. You're back on the planet. There, there is a lot of, you know, run around, capture, escape type stuff. But I do think it's the weakest episode, season two, episode two by a long, long mark. It's not a great one, but I don't think it's bad as fans say. But let's face it. This is literally them having nothing to do at the end of the season. Um, famously, the prisoner in space was uh, pulled from production at the very last moment for mm. good reason. <laughs> and and this is I think he's Terrence Sticks literally turning to Robert Holmes and going, mate, um, you know that Croton story you did was 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 kind of okay. Um, if I asked you to write six parts of something in a couple of days, could you do it? And Robert Holmes is like, yep, I'll I'll, I'll do it. I'll take your money. And <laughs> and the space pirates is what you get, uh, followed by Terrence Dix and Malcolm Holt going, cool. So now we need ten episodes to fill. Like that's where they were. So it's crazy it's, times. Yeah, it's crazy times. Mm. Which brings us on, I guess, to Monster Peladon, Dave. Yeah, so I've got mixed things to say about this story. I'll start from the start and say I'm very much of the belief that this is the weakest story in Pertwee's era. It, it doesn't quite hang together very well at all. But I think this is the first example of a genuine penultimate story in that Let's and Dicks were the first production team to really care about that sort of ongoing continuity and that ongoing series world making. Insofar as, you know, I mean, Planet of the Spiders is the first very deliberate homage to an era, to end an era. Mm. And I think they've got an eye towards that when they do the Monster of Peladon. We get to sort of start saying farewell to the Perwi era by going back to a planet that you know what was in a very good story and having that sequel we get to see a couple of familiar characters alpha centauri and agador and it's also looking at a few of the various sort of themes of the perwi era that that future universe that that future earth empire thing that we get in a lot of stories is sort of there that there is a sense of kind of doing a bit of a lap of honor here it's a shame it doesn't quite work Mm. the other thing that i think really defines the monster paladin though is this is the story that was being made at the time when Pertwee's retirement from the role was announced. So this is the story where he is starting to separate himself personally from the cast and crew and getting ready to make that. But it's also the story where the fan mail started to arrive saying, please don't go. We're really sad you're going. We don't want you to go or we'll really miss you. And so he's trying to make Doctor Who getting all these letters. I think he's very conflicted about going. He knows it's the right decision, but he's going to miss being the Doctor and miss coming into Doctor Who every day as a place of work. And, And that, I think, does come through in his performance 
It really does. By Planet of the Spiders, he's doing his big, you know, finale, and he, he's into it again. But this is the one where it's like, wow, I'm, I'm going, and I'm just not quite happy, and I'm not quite with it. And, <laughs> and you see it. I think you really do see it. He's really flat in this. So yeah. stylistically, they're going for a penultimate one, and it works there. But also just from an emotional, like, personal point of view, you really feel that this is Pertwee's penultimate story as a man. Mm. No, I agree with all of that. For me, I just want to say, you know, good grief. Here we are, another penultimate story, another stinker. People will tell you that Curse of Peladon is a delight. I'll tell you that too. I think it's great. You know, it zings along. It's short. It's fantastic. But Monster has always felt like filler to me. You know, I think this is easily the worst story of the season. Uh, and definitely in the bottom few Pertwees of all time, I think it's just sucky, Dave. I think it's boring. It just drags on and on and on. doesn't really do anything new with what we already had in, in, in Curse of Peladon. I, I've i never liked this. This is 5 out of 10 for me. Oh, that's that's generous. The other thing as well is... <laughs> the other thing as well is that the money's clearly running out and they're clearly putting a bit aside for Planet of Spiders. Yeah. And so, I mean, even, even down to the point of... Uh, okay, Barry, we've got the Ice Warrior costumes out of storage. Um, some of these haven't been used since the Seeds of Death. Uh, they're looking a little bit, a little, little bit damaged, and you know the paint's coming off a bit of them. Have we got the money to fix them? Nope. Uh, okay. Um, so we're looking to uh, get Agador's costume out of storage. It's it's it probably needs a bit of a remake. Have we got money? Nope. Okay. Uh, I want to do a few things with the sets, but it will cost. Nope. Nope. <laughs> you know there really is this feeling of like Doctor Who's always cheap. But this really feels and looks really cheap. Uh, like yeah. the, the, the lack of money does show on this one. Something shocking. Yeah, it, it really does. But we jump forward now to the Tom Baker era and Keeper of Traken. And can I say, you know, at last, a good penultimate story. <laughs> I have always liked this one, Dave. Tom's last season just has this mood of being the the end in one sense, yet other aspects like the titles and his costume are really fresh. It's like this new old show. You know, I'm not saying anything new or profound here. I just love that vibe. And, and Traken itself seems like such an interesting place. And Melker always seemed quite bizarre to me that they have this calcified thing out in, you know, out in the paddock. I think this is a good, solid 7 out of 10. But doesn't Tom look tired in it? You know, talking of Pertwee being sad about leaving, Tom looks tired here, Dave. Agree with all of that. If anything, I'm going to be more effusive in my praise of Keeper of Traken. I also love it. I could remember seeing this for the first time as a young boy and being absolutely captured by this world. This is what Doctor Who, to me, really should have... This is what, to me, Doctor Who was when I was seven, eight, nine. Alien worlds that just look amazing, interesting characters, weird alien menace, um, and just little things like little concepts like the way the consular rings would work or the way the flame behind the keeper's chair would go up and down depending on the strength of the keeper just stuff mm. that really like captured my imagination as a boy and and now i love it i lo and as an adult i now see the shakespearean aspects in there i now see the different character arcs and and, and ideas that are in there i appreciate the money that's been spent on it uh, it, it, it works really really well but again this now takes that penultimate thing a level even further because I think the whole of season 18 as we've said a couple of times over the last couple of episodes does have a vibe and a theme and a sort of a, 
a story running through it. And this famously ends with the clock on the face of the Master's TARDIS showing four minutes to midnight because Tom Baker's got four episodes left. Yeah, well, Christopher H. Bidmead would disagree, as we talked about last episode, but I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah, look, I mean, he disagreed that there was a deliberate, like, you know, modern-style arc, but I don't think there's any doubt that he had a very deliberate and consistent tone and that they were building towards the end of an era. I mean, the end of uh, Mm. the longest-serving Doctor. And, yes, Tom, Tom looks tired. Yeah, yeah. It's the end, Dave. <laughs> the end really is coming and and is foreshadowed with the end of The Keeper as well. You know, that the idea that the change of a lead actor will change the show mm. in the same way that the change of a keeper changes the Triken Union. It, there really is this sense of decay and things moving on and, and change. Yeah. Question without notice before uh, you move on to the next one. Uh, Deadly Assassin Master or Keeper of Triken Master? Deadly Assassin. Yeah, me too. Just looked more creepy and horrible. <laughs> yeah, and had more to do. I mean, Jeffrey Beavers, uh, who, who was a lovely guy, I saw him at a convention a few years ago now, in fact, but uh, I think he does a really good job and his voice work is amazing. Uh, he doesn't get as much to do as Peter Pratt's master does, and I do love the Peter Pratt mask. As restricting as it was for the actor, and I totally get why it was a problem, I love that mask. Yeah, I I remember the first time I think I saw it would have been in Peter Haining's A Celebration book and it was a black and white image of it and it looked scary as hell, those dead eyes and the yes. flesh coming off and oh my God, yeah. fantastic. Yeah, but as I said, Jeffrey Beavers is great as well. Mm, but yeah, absolutely. A, a great story, which takes us on to the fifth Doctor's penultimate story and my favourite of his era, Planet wow. of Fire. High praise. Yeah, I, 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 I really do think this is his best story of the era. I think his interaction with the Master is really good. Perry gets a great introduction. It looks amazing. Like The, mm. the, the location work in Lanzarote, both uh, being Lanzarote and also standing in for the Planet of San, just is absolutely amazingly well shot. And it looks like an alien world in a way that a quarry never quite will. And look, look, there's so much about this story, the characters, the, the plot, the, the ideas behind the plot about you know, who Logar really is and how the different characters interact with that concept of Logar and, and their faith and, and the rest of it. But as a penultimate story as well, I think this is really, really effective. It is, it is part of the dismantling of the Davison era that goes on around him for several stories. Tegan left the story before, and Turlo leaves in this one, and suddenly Davison looks and feels very different. With all of his old companions gone and suddenly a new person coming in, there really is this sense, particularly in that last few scenes where he's talking to Perry, of this is this is all starting to end. And he gets to have his big showdown with the Master. I think most people would say that Anthony Anley is most associated with Davison's Doctor. I mean, they have multiple interactions for, I think, across his era, which... You know, he only has about 20-something stories, so that's a lot of stories percentage-wise. So he gets his big showdown with, with the Master. I think Anthony Allen gives a really good performance here. Um, one of his best up there with Survival and um, Keeper of Tracking, in fact. Yeah. And, yeah, uh, yeah there, there's just so much to recommend this one. But again, there's a sense of something ominous just around the corner. 
Yeah, agree. I mean, I've told the story before, but I first saw this as an omnibus on uh, the ABC. I think they were doing them on Saturday afternoons or Sunday afternoons or something Saturday as omnibus. Saturday afternoons, yes, yes. And, you know, to me, it for that reason, it felt like a movie. It was this big, long thing. Large sections of it were on film. It was bright and sunny. It was Lanzarote. It felt real. It felt big. It felt amazing. I think that's always coloured my perception of it because, you know, I know people who aren't actually wowed by this story at all, which I don't get. But my first impressions of it were, wow, I could show this to friends and not be embarrassed because it's like a movie. It's like a film. You know, I, I thought every episode of Doctor Who should be like this. This was really good. Turlow's backstory I found interesting. You know, killing off the master. Well, we think he's been killed off. Uh, fantastic. You know, it's, it's eight out of ten stuff for me, Dave. Yeah, look, it's, it's even higher for me. As I say, it's my favourite, Davo. Uh, I think a lot of people do regard it fairly highly, but you're right, some don't. And, and I find that interesting. Maybe but, it's just the podcasts I listen to. I don't know. Yeah, look, look maybe. I, I don't know either. Um, I mean, it is, it is perhaps best remembered, unfortunately, for the uh, visual way in which Perry is introduced. And, and that is a very poor decision. But you're right. Fiona Cummings' direction here is remarkably good and I'm I'm surprised often that Fiona Cumming isn't mentioned in the same sort of levels as some of the best directors in the show because her work is really really good yeah she she is wonderful which brings us Dave to Terror of the Vervoids and yes. Colin Baker now we had a bit of a quick discussion when we were planning this episode about what we picked as Colin's penultimate story and I think we picked the only thing you really can pick but there were other options I mean you could argue Revelation of the Daleks you could or you could say that uh, maybe Ultimate Foe is his penultimate because he's technically in time in the Rani but I'm taking it that Colin's not in time in the Rani at all Sylvester's in a Harpo Marx wig you know so I'm sort of rolling it back an episode yes and so I'm saying this is his penultimate yes and of course Big Finish has done a whole lot with Colin since, including, I believe, his final story. So there's there's all that off-screen stuff as well. But look, yeah, we're going for a Terror of the Vervoids as the penultimate, yes. which is kind of an accidental <laughs> penultimate, I guess. Rob, so what did you make of it? Look, Dave, this is hugely maligned, this story. But as we've said on this podcast before, it's okay. You know, the trial segments sort of mess it up. But basically, this is Agatha Christie in space. Colin is charming. He's not being a dick. Bonnie's enthusiasm for everything, and, and let's get into investigating this Doctor, is very, um, you know, it's in keeping with, with what all the great companions do. I think she's quite good in this episode, you know. I think it's a shame it's so maligned. I might even call this a 7 out of 10, because for me, it's of its time, it's of its era, it's perfectly decent Doctor Who, it's not a classic, it's not designed to be a penultimate story, but it's quite alright. I have no problem with it. I think that the real shame about Colin Baker's era is that what ended up being his penultimate story is probably his best performance and the one where he best nails the character of the Doctor and seems most relaxed in the role. Yeah, like I said, he's charming. He's not a dick you know, yeah. in this story. He's, he's wonderful in it. Yeah, and, and Bonnie Langford as well. I, I noticed this the last time I watched Trial. She's really actually quite engaging in this. Um, I don't think she works quite as well with Sylvester's Doctor. I don't think she quite balances her performance writing some of those stories. But in this one, she's yeah really good. And after 
Tegan, who never quite wanted to be with the Doctor and was complaining a lot, and Perry, who just had a horrible time in the TARDIS and you just wondered why she stayed, to have this companion who just gets on with the Doctor and he's really excited about a new adventure and exploring the world in the way that we as fans and viewers are excited and want to explore these new alien worlds. She, she's now doing what we want companions to do. It works really, really well. I, I love this story. I think it's possibly my favourite of the Colin era. I couldn't, I couldn't say that as definitively as I can Ooh, say about Planet that's of a, That's a big call, Dave. Yeah, yeah, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not making it. I'm just saying maybe I could make it. I yeah. do absolutely, though, think it's Colin's best performance, and it's just such a shame that this turned out to be his penultimate story. It's not meant to be. It, and it's, yeah, he's just yeah. really good. It's a signpost for a future that never happened. Well, it happened on Big Finish, I guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But no, it's it's kind of just a bit sad when you are when you think about it in that sense. Mm. Shall we move on? So another one where we had to decide what we would actually call <laughs> the penultimate story is the McCoy era. Now, I was very tempted to again, as a fan of the Virgin books and someone who went through fandom in that time to say it should be Lungbarrow, which was <laughs> the final Sylvester McCoy new adventure. And again, as far as we were concerned as fans at the time, these books were the new series. We were watching to see what the new titles were and who the new authors were. And this was sold to us as, hey, everyone, we're releasing Sylvester McCoy's penultimate story. And this one finishes with him being sent off on his mission that he's on at the start of the telly movie. Yeah. So... And, and it is designed to wrap up the Cartmore Master Plan and do all of those things that they would have liked to have done on screen had they had more seasons. So, you know, a shout-out to Lungbarrow, which is designed to be a penultimate story and does it really, really well. Of course, McCoy's actual penultimate story is Survival. Uh, that's the last story before the telly movie, because I think you can count that as his last story. He's in it for a third of it, and he's written out in it, and... That that's that was my thinking. Unlike Colin not appearing in Time and the Rani Silver's very much in the TV movie for a big chunk of it. So yeah, I, I I can't see it any other way in terms of TV output. Yeah, and so again, Survival wasn't designed to be a penultimate story, but actually works out doing the job really really well. Now, again, I'm 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 actually finding this is a, a real coincidence. I'd never noticed before. Survival is my favourite of the McCoy era. Interesting. Wow. Okay. I I really love it. But it ends up being not just a really good story that I think tonally is really good. It's engaging. It's interesting. McCoy's at his best. Aldridge at her best. I think it is one of the two or three best only performances. He's really good in this. Mm. This is how he should have been the whole time. He engages well with McCoy. But you also get a kind of sense of the show wrapping itself up or wrapping an era up very, very nicely. Finally, Ace is returned to Perryvale. After nine stories, the Doctor brings her back to Perryvale. And it's also just got all the themes of the McCoy era. I think they've really now just... They've, they've nailed what they want to do with Doctor Who and Cartmel is just running with it. But then it ends with that, that lovely little monologue. Yeah. And so, uh, by accident... This actually works out really being a a nice wrap-up of the McCoy era before he goes on to the telly movie and and regenerates. And so I love this. I think it's one of the strongest on the list by far. 
Yeah, this, this feels like when Doctor Who got modern. I mean, the show had been set in current time periods in the past. I guess, you know, when Davo's running around Amsterdam, he's running around 1983 Amsterdam, or I guess it was 1982 when they filmed it. Uh, when Colin's in Attack of the Cybermen, he's in 1985. But those stories don't have the feel of this, or, or maybe even the slightly soap nature of this i think there's a little bit of soap opera in here as well you know and there's why people sometimes point at this as a bridge to new who they sort of mm. leapfrog over the tv movie and say you can sort of see new who's roots here um you know and yeah the master is menacing the cheetah people look good i love that you know a chunk of it happens in this really urban normal environment and then the speech at the end is lovely dave you know this, this is eight out of ten for me not my favorite mccoy but it's a great story and it's also an example of seeing doctor who suddenly catch up in many ways with television production and feeling like edgy modern tv they've finally got paint box to work really really well and it looks great on the cheetah people planet the music there, I mean, I've mentioned before, I think Dominic Glynn is possibly the best, um, you know, story for story, the best composer of the series. And the work he does here feels modern and edgy. You've got an electric guitar in a Doctor Who story. Like, that just, at the time, that was just like, wow, they don't do this. Yeah, yeah. And what so, am I hearing? This isn't, this This is weird. This is new. Wow. What, yeah. I, I can remember that first scene where the Doctor arrives on the Cheetah Planet and you've got all the paint box stuff and you've got all the visual effects and the guitar theme and the skeletons in the foreground. I just thought, what am I seeing? This yeah. is this is different. And, and you're right, it is a bridge into the new series like that. So I think it's a great story. And as a way to wrap up the era, and in fact to wrap up the classic era, let's face it as well, I think it just does an amazingly good job. Yeah, and it still makes me wonder what if about, you know, what if there was another McCoy season? What would it have looked like? How would it have felt? We get the, a bit of a vibe from the the Big Finish audios that were made many years later, but I just would have loved to have seen that, you know, yeah, given, it, given what we've just said about survival. Yeah, it's like Colin being cut down, just as you nailed the role. I think Doctor Who was cut down really as the McCoy era was really kicking goals. Yeah, agree. Uh, which brings us to the eighth Doctor, Dave, and this is a very cloudy sort of area. <laughs> <laughs> this is, I mean, there is no real penultimate eighth Doctor story to, to my mind. I mean, we can talk about the Gallifrey Chronicles, which was quite a decent Lance Parkin novel uh, with a very ambiguous ending. Um, it was written long before Night of the Doctor, of course, so you'd have to wonder how he'd go from jumping into the Vorhive with fits and tricks at the end of the Gallifrey Chronicles to ending up in the Time War. You know, there's, there's, there's too great a, a distance between those two things uh, to sort of really fill it in properly. I guess that's where Big Finish comes in in some ways, but his Big Finish stories just go on and on. And unlike Colin, who, you're quite right, has done literally the last adventure for Big Finish. That was the name of his uh, last adventure. I don't think there's any equivalent McGann story yet. You know, maybe the Time War stories will sort of push him in that direction and, and, and leave him butted up against where the uh, <laughs> where the uh, Night of the Doctor starts. I don't know. So this is like, uh, do we talk Gallifrey Chronicles? Do we talk stuff on Big Finish that isn't really penultimate? What do we do, Dave? Or do we just talk about the Eighth Doctor being a pretty good Doctor? I don't know. <laughs> uh, look, I think all we really can say is that obviously the Mc obviously the eighth doctor's era is a very small era on screen i mean if you literally just go with his on-screen appearances 
his penultimate story is also his opening story. So yes. <laughs> um, it's it's very hard. He, he He's had all these different eras. He's got his on-screen era. He's got his BBC books era. He's got his big finish era. All of which sort of go off, as you said, in different tangents. And, and I think, unless you really try very, very hard, aren't compatible with each other. And I think that's just where the Eighth Doctor is. I don't think we can sort of pretend there is a, a through line that ends with a penultimate story. Yeah, I mean, Moffat got him to name-check some of the companions in that line during Night of the Doctor where he just runs through a few names. Uh, it's, that, it's that strange line where he goes, you know, blah, 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 I apologise. <laughs> he really <laughs> he really over-emphasises apologise. Uh, yeah, but yeah, they don't really fit together that well. No, it, it's nice that they reference, but no, they don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Shall we move on? So we're back now to something that we spoke about earlier in our list and we're doing that when we discuss Boomtown for the Ninth Doctor and that is that sense of okay we're getting towards the end of the season a couple of stories have fallen through we just need to get something out there and we need to make it as quickly and as simply and ideally as cheaply as possible because Mm -hmm. a lot of attention is going to go into our final story and I think this is a good point Rob to just to reiterate uh something which is we made the decision that we would call two parters one story yeah so therefore uh we are calling boomtown the ninth doctor's penultimate rather than bad wolf as part one of that that two-part story because i mean that that is that that is his finale and so this is his penultimate that's the way we've decided to go yeah so boomtown you know was written by russell t davies just to fill that slot so they could get to the, the the finale i'm not a fan uh, I think that the silliness quotient with the Slovene both here and in World War Three, just is a little bit high for my personal taste. I get that it's in the sweet spot for the personal taste of other people. I'm very cool with that. It's just not something that quite resonates for me. And and this one, I think it is a little bit of a nothing story. I think where it's got a good reputation, that really hinges on the one scene, which is that dinner scene between... The Doctor and Margaret Slovene, which is a very well-written scene. Again, it's a little silly and a little... My suspension of disbelief just isn't strong enough to make it work. But I Mm. totally appreciate what's going on. I totally appreciate the acting. As a penultimate story, though, serendipitously, it actually works out quite well. It works out in a practical sense because this is the story that shows us the Doctor and Jack and Rose all travelling together as a team so that they can work as a team in the finale the way they need to. It's the story that introduces what's going to be the deus ex machina device that you know forms the conclusion of the next story and the Doctor's regeneration and the end of that era, which is, of mm. course, the heart of the TARDIS. We, we see that foreshadowed here. And we also get to see the... Ninth Doctor being very relaxed in his own skin. Yeah. Which I think sets him up nicely for the decision he has to make in his finale where he once again has to make a choice between destroying everything so that he can destroy the bad thing and this time says, no, that's not who I want to be. We, we see him here relaxed here and it's a really good excellent performance. I think there's a lot to commend this as a penultimate story, whether you enjoy it or not. As I say, it doesn't work for me, it works for others. But but in that sense, I think it actually does work amazingly well for something that was just 
thrown together by RTD to fill a slot. Mm. Yeah, I felt really let down by this one the first time I watched it. I didn't like the Margaret Slovene character at all. I didn't like the story that much. I did always think there was something about that, you know, cafe restaurant conversation between the Doctor and Margaret, but it never sold me on the whole story. But you know what, Dave? Repeated viewing of this has really brought the story up for me. I think it's like about a 7 out of 10 at least. Uh, Mickey and Rose are like this dysfunctional couple like they even talk about getting a hotel room at one stage and and you just think i've never heard that in doctor who before (laughs) (laughs) you know oh that's different that's that that feels very real all of a sudden and you know well captain jack is very captain jack and you know i i think it's not too bad the tardis turning margaret back into an egg is a bit hokey but i tend to go with it on the whole now it's not a great great story but yeah, I, I like it. And I think you're right. The Ninth Doctor is really settling into things. And it, it is almost the calm before the storm, maybe. Yeah, I, I think it is. I think it's the nice little adventure you have before the big dramatic finale. And mm. as I say, in that sense, it works. I, I think you're right, Rob. If you buy into the tone of what this story is, it works really, really well. And I just haven't quite bought into it yet. But maybe... I mean, I mean, like a lot of stories, with, with, with time, you, you do sort of become more fond of them. And, and I certainly regard it better now than I did in 2005, where I just thought, after a run of really good, really good stories that I enjoyed, and you know, the last two episodes I thought were amazingly good, I thought this was just like the one turkey in a run of otherwise, you know, seven or eight good episodes. Um, yeah. I, 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 I now no longer think it's a turkey, I just think it's a weak one that doesn't work for me. I think we're in a very similar boat with this story. Uh, just sounds like I like it a little bit more than you. Maybe I've watched it a few more times than you at the moment. <laughs> so I'm very keen, Rob, to hear what you think of the 10th Doctor's penultimate one because I've got hugely mixed thoughts on this one. Ah, okay, Dave. The Waters of Mars. This is almost one of my favourite tenant stories, but it's let down by a few things. But first, let's look at the good stuff. It's expensive it looks expensive mm. the the story to me is interesting adelaide's suicide at the end is the ultimate fu to the doctor um i think that's one of the most shocking things we've ever seen in doctor who i think it's at least top five shocking things we've ever seen in doctor who the main thing that drags this one down for me however <laughs> and this this will sound very petty and fanish dave is that the people start to turn into what look like ice warriors. (laughs) They have scaly mouths, and the fact they're on Mars, it all makes sense, except they're not ice warriors. And this annoys me so much that these mutations could have taken these people in any direction, you know, and yet they mutate into something like a creature from this planet, yet have nothing to do with those creatures. It just annoys me so, so much, Dave. I don't know if it's an OCD thing or what, like I need these people to be ice warriors. (laughs) but when they get those green scaly mouths and aren't ice warriors it drives me crazy anyway we get away from that that's very fanish the way at the end the doctor goes from time lord victorious to being so so shaken also feels a bit too quick for me it's almost like the change of decision that anakin skywalker has in star wars where at one point he's going to kill 
Palpatine and then next minute he's killing Mace Windu or helping to kill Mace Windu. He just turns on a dime. Here, I think I would have loved to have seen Tennant go into his final story as really cocky. I'm Time Lord Victorious. Nothing's going to get me. Ah, you say I'm going to die. I'm not going to die. I wish he'd been more like that. Instead, he's all, ah, I'm Time Lord Victorious. And then, ah... He's, he's, he's let down and shaken by the end of the story. I just think that happens too quick too. So there's a few things that bother me about this story, but I do like it very much. It's probably a 7.5 out of 10. There's a lot there you've just said, Rob. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, this is unquestionably a story that was written to be a penultimate story. There's no doubt about that. It is very well designed in that sense. Like you, I was blown away when I saw this the first time. I can remember watching this and just being on the edge of my seat, actually gripped by by some of the drama and the tension. The monsters were scary. Even as an adult, you, you sort of, there was something really creepy and scary about them. The characters were really quickly written and introduced, and you, 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 you liked them and you cared about their safety. Uh, there were wonderful dramatic moments. The one that still stands out for me is that just one drop doctor moment where the, mm. the guy thinks he's about to escape and there's just that little drip of water that comes through and gets on his skin and he's like, well, that's it, I'm done. You yeah, know, that's really, really good. Tennis performance is great. I know what you mean about the Ice Warrior thing I, and I think the problem is as fans, when you see Mars and you see that makeup, you're waiting for the Ice Warrior reveal or the Ice Warrior link and because it doesn't come, you feel cheated. Now, that's an unfortunate just fan reaction. I think once you know it's not there, I, I, I'm able to put it to the side, and, and that's fine. The suicide at the end, I think, is hugely problematic because I think any story that says suicide is, in inverted commas, a solution is a very bad place to go. Mm. It is, however, a very dramatic place to go. And yeah, I remember watching that again for the first time and just being like, wow, this has really gone somewhere dark and really escalated this sort of stuff. The big problem I have is not with the waters of Mars, it's with what comes next. We've just set up the Doctor having had this massive moment of failure, this massive moment where his ego has just had horrible consequences and all this arrogance that's been building up, frankly, for his entire era Mm. has been punctured and none of it is picked up in the next episode. None of it is built upon in the finale. And in fact, I think his finale is pretty terrible from go to woe. I think it's actually awful in so many ways. Mm. Which is a shame because Waters of Mars is so good. And you're right, if if across all of these specials, there'd been a better sense of that transition from the the, the Time Lord Victorious wanker, which I just could not stand, to him getting his comeuppance and that having to really, you know, feed into the regeneration would have been amazing. Instead, it's kind of all done in one story, which makes for an amazing story. And that makes for an amazing penultimate story, but it doesn't link to the finale, which kind of means it fails as a penultimate story in some ways. So are we differing here? You would have liked to have seen him punctured, his ego punctured at the end of this story and then go into the next story with that theme carrying on that his ego's punctured because I'm I would have liked him to have gone into the next story just as an ego maniac and maybe had it punctured in the next story. Uh, yeah, that that I think is where we're disagreeing. I think that if you I think that it had to be punctured here. This was this was the way to do it. 
but let's see the consequences of it next story. But I totally see where you're coming from, and either would work better than puncturing it here and ignoring it in the next one, which is basically what happens. Yeah, I mean, think of that Peter Capaldi story where he comes in playing electric guitar on a tank, and that just didn't feel earned. It felt weird. I hate that scene. If Tennant came into his final story playing electric guitar on a tank after being the Time Lord Victorious in this story, I would have totally bought it. It would have been like, oh, he comes the egomaniac. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally get what you're saying, and it's a really good, and I think it would work perfectly well. Uh, I, I would go in a different direction, but as I say, they're both better than what we got, I think. And mm. it's a shame. Look, I agree. This is one of Tennant's best stories, and in terms of being memorable... I think it's way up there for the whole era of Doctor Who. This is a very memorable story that I just sits in my mind very visually and I can remember the feelings when I was watching it. Yeah. Shall we move on? We should. So Matt Smith kind of gets, well, I was going to say kind of gets a bit of a bum steer with his penultimate story, which is an odd thing when you consider that his story is the wonder that is the day of the Doctor. I say that it's a bum steer because his penultimate story isn't really about him. Mm. Yes, he's the star of it, but he's the co-star with David Tennant, who suddenly is back, and 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 that's great, and they work well together, but it takes a lot of the limelight away from Smith, as always happens in multi-doctor stories. You've got John Hurt as the conceit that is the war doctor and often stealing scenes and, and taking away more from Matt Smith. Most of the big moments in this story and and let me say i really enjoy this story lots of the big moments in this story aren't around matt smith they're around seeing the other doctors around gallifrey they're around oh my god tom baker's there they're around some of the reveals with the zygons i think david tennant and john hurt between them get the best lines and matt smith's there just to smile and nod and go wow i'm i'm lucky to be on stage with these guys (laughs) is is day of the doctor a really good celebration of Doctor Who's 50th year. Absolutely. Great fun story. Saw it in the cinema. Wasn't expecting to love it. Did love it. It's great. As a penultimate story for Matt Smith, uh, he can't, he kind of gets screwed. He's kind of not, you know, it's just not about him. Interesting. I've come at this from a completely different angle, Dave. Mm-hmm. Because I, I would like to say lucky old Smithy. Because... <laughs> He has so many duff stories in his era. Yes. He he always puts in a stellar performance and is always fantastic. Um, but many of his stories are just awful, including his finale. <laughs> his finale is bloody terrible. Yes. But for his penultimate story, Dave, and I've taken on board everything you've just said. I, I have heard you. But for his penultimate story, he gets this story, and there aren't enough nice things I can say about this story. Sure, it's not a comfy five doctors, warm slippers kind of story, but it's meant for the modern era and a modern audience. It's a fun story. It's a story I say is fantastic. It's nine out of ten. So I don't even think of it in terms of being a penultimate story. I just think of it as being such a great story. And given he gets such a god-awful finale, it makes me so happy that just before the end, he gets to stand there having jokes with Tennant. He gets Sir John Hurt in in one of his episodes. He gets all this great stuff. It gets beamed across the planet to cinemas. It's wonderful. 
And so I come at it at a slightly different angle, probably because I know what's coming up next. And I just think, oh, Smithy, you're so lucky. You did. You got a terrible finale, but your penultimate story is fantastic. That's a really interesting take, Rob, and I can't disagree with any of it. And you have come at it from a different angle. I think we're both right in our own different ways. Mm. And, and, and it just depends on which, which way you take it. I, I agree with you that this is a wonderful celebration and and you know you say that it's not quite the warm comfy slippers thing that the five doctors was but if we were maybe say 10 to 15 maybe even 20 when this came out would it be for us what five doctors was for us maybe it would be you know i i can't get myself in that mindset but maybe it would be yeah yeah i i I think that it it would be and it's just because of the era that you grew up in that you know one's going to be more fond to you than the other had this not existed and Smithy's penultimate story was Name of the Doctor, I would have said that, look, it's not a story I like, but it is very much a summation of all the themes and ideas of Smith's era in which Smith is very much the star around which everything happens. Uh, and that would have perhaps been a bit more fitting. And, and, and you know, frankly, for an era that, you know, I'm out there and say it is in my favourite era, I don't like a lot of it. All, all the things that I don't like about it are very neatly summed up in this in Name of the Doctor and therefore if you're a fan of the era I suspect all the things you would love about it are equally well summed up in that and that would have been a more satisfying penultimate and, and it kind of works if you just say look Day of the Doctor is just this big uh, you know it, it doesn't belong to the Matt Smith era it belongs to the series in the same way you can sort of say Five Doctors isn't really a Davison story it's just a special that's in there that all the doctors are in if you do that I think uh, you know the Matt Smith era works better but you're right Matt Smith does get arguably his best story mm. in in this one I mean that's a, that's a matter of personal taste I, I still think there are other good Matt Smiths I mean Amy's Choice Vincent and the Doctor very good I'm very fond of them uh, but this has got to be up there as one of his best and given that a lot of fans vote this as the best story of all time it therefore must be the best story of his era. You would think so, hey? <laughs> so, yeah, look, that is a positive. I just think it's a shame that with his era coming to a close so soon, I don't ever feel this story is about him. Certainly the things that I remember from it, none of them are about Matt Smith. No, uh, that, that's fair. Let's move on um, for time reasons, Dave. Uh, <laughs> yes. Capaldi... This was an interesting one. Where does where does Capaldi end? Well, he ends with that god awful thing where he meets the fake first Doctor. Yep. So we so we have to rewind, and we rewind to a two parter. So it's world enough in time, and the Doctor falls as his penultimate episode in quotation marks. Yes, I know my views, Rob. What are yours? <laughs> well, Dave, like Smithy, I think Capaldi was saddled with some real crap to act in. And swathes of his first series have him doing that, I'm really unlikable and I've forgotten what humans are like, gosh, I'm really alien, me, aren't I? You know, shtick. Which some people seem to like, but I've always found quite stupid. Like, there's a way to showing alien and not doing stuff like not knowing what sex someone is or what is crying or what whatever lines he was being given in the stories. I, I, I found the start of Capaldi's era quite off-putting in yeah, some ways. Yeah, that, that, that stuff where he has to... Con- he has to convincingly forget 11 regenerations previous of experience as though he's never done this stuff before, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's just so unrealistic. Like, it's just done for a cheap laugh, and, ah, oh, 
oh, don't get me started down that path. But this two-parter, Dave, is amazing. Something I've said before, this story owes a huge debt to spare parts, the big finish story, even though it doesn't credit it anywhere. Yes. Unlike that tenant story that does credit spare parts, yet is nothing like spare parts. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Doctor Who can be so confusing. Look, this story is just great. It's eight and a half out of ten, I think, uh, stuff for me. I like it very much, and oh, it's not even a penultimate story. This should have been his finale, Dave. He he should have gone down to the Cyberman, looked up, wished there were stars, and regenerated, and then somehow got himself out of that mess in the, as the new Doctor um, got off the ship somehow. But, uh, gosh, what could have been if this was his finale and not that awful, awful, awful Christmas episode? Yes, that was my main takeaway from this as well. I think this is an amazingly good story. It is possibly Capaldi's best, if not certainly one of his best. Its biggest fault, though, is that, as you say, it should have been his finale. And um, it's it's ironic now, looking back, that, that Moffat gave us that awful Christmas special with the fake First Doctor because you wanted to save the Christmas specials for the future and Chibnall then threw them away for a New Year's special. So... Yes. <laughs> it's ironic, but uh, whatever. Look, I gave World Enough and Time and The Doctor Falls a 9 and a 10, respectively, when we did our reviews, and I, I stand by that. I think they're amazingly good. I still say that Series 10 of Doctor Who, that last Capaldi season, is one of my two favourites of the new series. And, and, you know, it's it's Season 1 and Season 10 of the new series, then Daylight, and then my third, fourth, fifth favourites. I, I just love those two. Mm way above all the others and and it built towards this really really well capaldi does get to wrap up a lot of the stuff in this story his relationship with missy and and indeed the master his relationship with his companions uh, a lot of the themes you know when capaldi sort of starts off his era with that whole you know who am i am i a good man am i a nice man what am i doing and just ends up with the whole you know what just be kind yeah and, and so thematically it's a nice summing up and it gets the era tied up nicely. It does everything you want it to do. It just should have been the end. I, I totally agree. We said it at the time, and I, I've only become further in my view. If he'd regenerated after that moment, I'd hope there'd be stars. That would have been possibly the best regeneration ever. Wasn't to be. We've we've said that many times, and I guess some people who disagree might be sick of us saying it. So <laughs> we apologise. Um, it's a great story. Yeah, yet another thing to blame Chris Chibnall for. Um, <laughs> Indirectly, but yeah. <laughs> to conclude, Dave, after those first three Doctors' uh, penultimate stories, I think we tend to have really good penultimate stories. Maybe there's more of a focus or thought given to this is the end of this guy's era, let's make it count, or something along those lines, because they all seem to pick up a gear or two from Keeper of Track and uh, back in the Tom Baker era. Yeah, I think across many of them, there is that desire to start wrapping up an era and foreshadow what's going to come along the way. Uh, there are, of course, scattered through them a number of, okay, we've got our finale, good to go, we're putting money into that. We haven't got something for the last slot, quick, just get something out and we have no money to do it. I mean, the fact that Boomtown has that in common with the Space Pirates is interesting. But the number of times I said this is my favourite story of the era, I think just shows that there is nothing better than time and experience to get an era working well and that the longer an actor plays the role 
the longer that a producer makes the show, the longer that a script editor or a showrunner writes the show, the better they're going to get. And therefore, you do get these really strong stories right towards the end of all of their eras. I think that's only natural. Mm. And if I can come back to a point we've made several times over the last year on our show, Rob, that just, I think, demonstrates that whatever you say about Jodie Whittaker's first series, which, you know, we didn't hate, but we weren't fond of either, there is every chance it's going to get phenomenally better very quickly because all of these eras did. Yeah, yeah, and we've just got to sit back and let it happen and not prejudge. Yep, and by the time we get to Jodie Whittaker's era, whether that's in one year's time or seven years' time, I don't know, whatever that is, I suspect that her penultimate story will be far better than anything we saw in her first series, and you wouldn't expect it to be any different. Experience and practice does make things better. Absolutely. Just thinking back to my uh, beloved Davo, you know, sitting halfway through his second season, could you have imagined anything like Planet of Fire or Caves of Androzani? you know, sitting alongside the sort of stuff that was coming out in his uh, middle season. Yeah. Could you imagine Terror of the Vervoids being made when you're sitting there trying to get through some of season um, 21? I mean, it's a very different Doctor. It's a very different show. Could you imagine survival at the end of Delta and the Bannerman? No. <laughs> Not in a million years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think that we have no idea what's around the corner for Jodie Whittaker and this has kind of demonstrated that, but yeah, it's been a really interesting run through this set of stories, Rob. I've I've actually taken away more than more from this than I even thought I would when I was planning and preparing for this episode. Yeah, and I like the way how you know Jody obviously doesn't have a penultimate story yet, but we've managed to end on a on a Jody Whittaker note to tie it up to today. Uh, yes, like completely by accident, so that, that worked well. <laughs> well done, Rob. Pat, pat's yeah. on the back all around. <laughs> Very good. Pat's all around. Self-congratulatory Excellent. podcasting. That's that's always good. <laughs> now, before we get to what we're doing next month, Dave, we do have a uh, listener email. It's from Ham-Fisted Bap Vendor, and he emails us, Hello, Robin Dave. Caught up with your sophomore episode this week. Another well-rounded and enjoyable podcast. And yes, quite a feat covering 13 stories in one episode. Living down under myself, I can echo your comments about the anticipation of the Season 18 box set hitting the shelves here. We generally seem to be a month behind the UK, of course, but the Twitter and forum responses always help whet the appetite. Anyway, looking forward to the penultimate story episode. Maybe a chance for the monster of Peladon to receive a little love, although I think I might be in the minority here. Ah, yeah, you still might be in the minority there. (laughs) Yes, thank you very much for the email and for the very, very nice comments. We do appreciate hearing those. Uh, unfortunately, yes, I don't think we've uh, delivered what you're after for the Monster of Peladon, so sorry about that. Mm, apologies. Dave, what are we doing next month? So next month, we're going to be talking about special effects. Now, anybody who is a fan of Doctor Who, particularly the classic series, knows the special effects are not always good, and often we excuse them, and often we understand they're part of the times. But there are occasions, I contend, Rob, where... A special effect is so bad that it does actually significantly detract from the story. So we're going to spin that round and say, what are a handful of stories that each of us would like to see the special effects changed? And that if that happened, it would cause a significant reevaluation of the story and improve the story. So I'm not going to set a fixed number. It might be four, it might be five, it might be six that we each come up with, depending on what we have we want to say. 
but mm. but a story where changing a main special effect would massively improve the story. I think that'd be interesting, and I'm very keen to hear any listener suggestions as well. What's a story that you would like to see the special effects done on and would be a much different experience if they were? Mm, I think it's going to be a very interesting, a very different episode for us to do. Yes, and look, we're going right across the whole era of the show because let's face it, you go back now to some of the early new season Doctor Who's and you go, wow, that technology was very cheap and primitive at the time. It's it's funny, I rewatched a whole of the Harry Potter movies just to, I guess, to segue back to where we started, Rob, and I remember when I watched these about a year or so ago, watching um, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone and looking at some of the CGI and that and going, wow, that's really primitive and that looks actually really dated. And these yeah. aren't old, old movies. No, it's almost time for a special edition yeah. of those movies, I think, Dave. Yeah, yeah, it probably is. I'm surprised they haven't started making a new generation of them and something. I mean, we're not that far off 20 years from the first movie. Mm. Anyway, anyway <laughs> just before we go, I want to give a, a shout out to uh, all our listeners out there to give us a rating and review on iTunes. It does help people find us. And with all the iTunes stores being unique from each other, people in the UK putting down reviews, your reviews don't sit side by side with people putting down reviews from Australia or from other iTunes stores. So the way people see us all over the world could be quite different depending on how many reviews and ratings we have in different stores. It's a very complex system. And we don't bang on about this every episode. Gosh, I can't remember the last time we even mentioned it. But I would love to see, and I'm sure Dave, you'd love to see some more uh, iTunes ratings and letting people know about the show if you like us there's a chance other people might like us absolutely rob we don't talk about this every episode because we we just kind of want to chat and kind of forget that this is a uh, enterprise is the wrong word because we're certainly not making money but you know (laughs) you know we, we we do this we have these conversations and i know for me as i was saying at the start in as someone who lives a job that can be extremely consuming and extremely you know busy at times i love having doctor who fandom to just lose myself in i really really do but, you know, it is good to be able to get these things on iTunes. So just every once in a while, we're going to remind you, if you've enjoyed this, please log off, get onto iTunes and just, just give us a rating. Uh, that helps us to share this conversation with more people. Well said, Dave. Well, that's all I've got, Rob. Yeah, me too. I, I am spent. I'm going to go and have some lunch now, I think. Fair enough. I don't know what I'm going to do, but um, I'll find <laughs> something. Maybe I'll watch some more Season 18. <laughs> Yeah, I might crack mine open and have a go. Or maybe some more Macro Terra, we'll see. Fair enough. Well, until then, I've been Dave. I've been Rob. And we'll chat in a month. See you then. Bye. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights for the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.